Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment, you're nailing it, and the next, you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Laura Froyan, and on this week's episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast, we're going to be talking about how our approaches to working with neurodivergent and challenging kids has changed over the past, you know, 10 years. And in particular, so as a host of a podcast, I get approached by experts in a range of fields often. And one of the fields that I get approached by a lot are folks who are board-certified behavior analysts practice a form of therapy called ABA. And it's something that I have been reluctant to have a guest on in this area because in my experience with the autism community, particularly autistic adults and their reflections on their time in ABA, the community in general has had some pretty negative experiences with it. And so I've been reluctant. I very much want to prioritize autistic voices here in this podcast. And I've been really struggling with this because I get asked a lot but I finally found the person to come on and talk about it with you. So I'm excited for this conversation. My guest this week is one of the community managers in my free Balanced Parenting Facebook group. If you're not in there yet, the link to it is in the show notes. I'd love to have you come in. So our moderator is a certified collaborative and proactive solutions provider like I am. Collaborative and Proactive Solutions is the model that was built by Dr. Ross Green. You might be familiar with his book, The Explosive Child. This model is a beautiful collaborative approach to meeting a child where they are and supporting them in getting their very unique needs met so that there can be more harmony in a home. So Shawnee, my guest, and I are both certified in CPS, and Shawnee happens to be a former BCBA. And so she's going to share a little bit about why she left the field and moved into this more collaborative approach. And I'm hoping that this conversation will be really helpful, particularly for families who are looking to get their kiddo some support, get their family some support, and are finding that most of the providers available or recommended to them have that BCBA, those letters behind their name. So that's my hope for this podcast episode. Shawnee, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. Why don't you just introduce yourself for a minute for those of you who aren't familiar with you yet? I hope you all will get familiar with her. She does amazing Facebook lives and answers so many great questions questions in our free Facebook group. So Shawnee, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for that compliment. I am a certified collaborative proactive solutions provider. That's something that I've been involved with for probably about two years now. 
And before that, I spent about a decade in the ABA field, the last two years of which I was board certified, which would be the supervisory level ABA therapist. Yeah. And for listeners, sorry, ABA stands for Applied Behavioral Analysis. Yes? Yeah. Okay. And so what is it that led you to see the need to leave that field? It wasn't an instant decision. It really was a very gradual process. I fell into the field at the age of 19. It was a summer job. I worked at a special ed school and I was put in the ABA classroom and was trained and was like, oh, this seems so cool. We can actually control what kids do. It seems like such a wonderful thing. I guess I kind of put it towards my young age at the time that I really just wasn't thinking about what's right or wrong, but this was what was told to me. I think, I think it's it was- important to note, too, that at 19, the part of our brain, and, I, you know, we think of 19s as a complete adult, but 19-year-olds, the part of their brain that makes rational decisions, does a lot of good abstract thinking, that kind of that last level is still growing. It's still got five more years to go of growth and development. So I just want to offer your beautiful brain some compassion <laughs> in that <laughs> moment. You. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, you know what? It was about maybe five years into the field, so that would match with your what you just said. That I was starting to think and starting to have doubts, and so my first introduction to a different way of seeing parenting and education was the Rye method. Mm. I found that online somehow, and so part of me knew like this is amazing. When I have kids, I want to do this. But the other part of me was just like, okay, but we're doing ABA at work, so that's what we're doing. Oh, fascinating. I'm a rye parent too. Rye, like rye parenting. I fell in love with it as when my children were infants, when my young oldest was an infant. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And it, it doesn't track, does it? When you're treating infants with such deep respect and collaboration. It was a cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. That's, it was. Yeah, this is, it's a, a very emotional topic. You like, you'll see, I'm like pausing a lot. I'm feeling a lot of emotion about this journey. I would say that there's a lot of personal change that has happened for me aside from professional change through finding a different way of treating children. I've discovered a different way of treating myself. That doesn't happen uh, very much it, these days. Shani. Yeah. I feel like oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> No, I'm not sorry. Tears are beautiful. I'm not sorry. The world yeah, wants us to apologize for our tears and our sensitivity. And I don't think we should. But gosh, you just so succinctly summed up my vocation yeah. in learning yeah. to treat children differently. We learn to treat ourselves differently. It's beautiful. I'm sorry. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Yeah. So I'll continue with Please do. the journey. So... Yeah, I had that cognitive dissonance, right? And and then there was a part of me too that said that why can't they both be true? ABA and this respectful approach. And I want to clarify. So I'll go into a little bit of my viewpoint on ABA because... And maybe, oh, maybe at some point, maybe we should backtrack because maybe we don't, many of our listeners don't really know what ABA is, the approach. Right. So maybe... Can I hold a placeholder for for that? And you can tell us a little bit about what ABA is and why it maybe didn't feel so respectful to you once you were learning more. Yeah, I definitely want to do that. And I'll just put in for now that I don't hold the position that ABA, the science, is harmful. 
I want to clarify that because, you know, if ABA people are listening to this, I understand the need for, for accuracy. Um, and the science is the science. And, and really, the issues I had with the field were completely with the applications and not mm. with the science itself. Because you can't, it's like gravity. You can't have an issue with gravity. It's what you do with the information. Tell us more. I, I want to lean into that. What do you mean? By that what is the science and then what is the what are the problems with how it can be applied there are principles of behavior um, that are just true and that's what aba is based on the principles of behavior we learn you know in the courses that i took to become certified we were taught that aba is a natural science and not a social science meaning that they're seeing it as just Physics. a form of nature yeah right like like gravity and I don't doubt that that's true. I think that there is a, a part, like I'm holding up like a circle, <laughs> viewers, <laughs> the listeners can't see, like a small little circle of, of behavior that we've managed to turn into a natural science that we've managed to analyze and break down into like measurable pieces. I think the issue comes from the fact that we we're so confident that we've turned it into a natural science that we extend that into all realms of emotion and attachment and behavior change. And the reality is, is that humans are much more complicated than that. Right. And to me, because I've been in both worlds, I really see why there's such a divide between, I see why it's so hard for each, I don't know, not that I think that autistic people need to hear the ABA side. I don't want to say that, but I think a lot of what the struggle is with autistic adults really would like to, ban ABA. And I totally understand that. And I, when I've seen the ABA people on the receiving end of hearing that, their argument is always, but we're science. There's nothing mm. to ban. We're literally information that explains how the world works. So that's why the conversation never happens. So you're saying that the it becomes abusive in its application. Yes. In its or, applica- prob- or problematic in its application. Right. The more <laughs> neutral term. As I was preparing for this this interview, I was thinking back to a time when my kids got guinea pigs. They were, we were new pet owners for the first time, and my oldest child desperately wants to learn everything about a topic that she can before she has to do something. And so she was reading a guinea pig care manual, and there was they were talking about how you can train a guinea pig, you know, to do tricks and stuff. But there was this pull-out box that highlighted that you should never use punishment you know, and punishment from a behavioral science perspective, punishment is a is a legitimate way of teaching animals. We use, that's how we, we learned. We learned it through B.F. Skinner's work. We learned it through Watson's work. We learned, um, you know, Pavlov's dogs that by applying a painful stimulus, animals will learn. And it's interesting mm-hmm. to me that, and my, and my child, immediately recognize this because she knows that I teach parenting without punishment. You know, so when we talk about that in my our home, she comes home and tells stories about punishments her friends have received and very curious about why parents think that that would work. And she, she read that part and she said to me, she's like, why do parents think that they should do something to, to kids that these experts are saying we shouldn't even do to guinea pigs? You know, it was just, it's uh-huh. just a, like... It is. There's that dissonance there. And so I don't I think that them from the diagnosis piece that there's a certain that it's viewed as a medical thing they're trying to treat. So, yeah, 
Mm-hmm. I do. Th- that's that's a lot of the autistic adults complaint is view us as people, not as diagnoses that need to be fixed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that don't need fixing. And that honestly, in one thing that I've learned in my work with collaborative and proactive solutions is that most of the time there's nothing wrong with the child. Though it's happening for most kids who are having a really challenging time is that there's a mismatch mm-hmm. between environment and the child's needs. And once yep. the child's needs are more fully supported and seen and the environment is shifted, the kid is fine. They just, you know, aren't existing in a world that was built for them. And we have been trained to want to make our children conform and fit into the box that we think they're supposed to fit into. And that's just not the reality for a lot of folks. And it's really not what's good for most people either. Right. You know what I mean? I don't know. I feel like we got off track, (laughs) but (laughs) yeah, there's so much to talk about. There's so many different things. So in my mind and my picture of ABA, and I think like probably the folks who've people who've maybe seen ABA, the like the portrayals in the media maybe are not the greatest, but there seem to be a lot of rewards, sticker charts, figuring out what motivates the child and using that to get them to do what you want. That's that's kind of my impression of ABA. What is it really Mm -hmm. like? Yeah, that's a huge part of it. Um, I like to break it down into there's really two different reasons why I'm against ABA. And the first one is there are actual harmful practices that are still being done outside of those reward stickers. Mm -hmm. Um, So the harmful ones that I think that the field is trying to move away from partially they're aware, but I mean, it's just still so widespread. And those, so those would be escape extinction is one escape extinction. Is it, should I, should I describe is so yeah. trigger warning for anyone trigger warning <laughs> yes i you know because we we do have lots of folks who identify as autistic in our audience and who have autistic kids so yeah yeah so trigger warning definitely trigger warning for you people for for you who identify that way so escape extinction is what the adult has determined is that the child is doing their behavior in order to get the reinforcer of escape right that's the reason they're doing it so how do we respond to that like don't i mean to like get out of doing something right is that what is that what that means in practical terms like so if they are not doing their homework or something or you know yeah in the aba setting a lot of times they'll be just running away from the work desk Mm -hmm. you know or just not having escape from demands being presented as often Mm -hmm. okay when the therapist has to now attend to the behaviors all of a sudden work stops being presented right so that's Mm -hmm. the theory so so following that theory how do we fix this well we don't let them get what they want what they're looking for we don't let them get escape but how can you do that in a non-harmful way i mean it's just not possible you'd have to pretty much either restraints so it was never called restraint at that point. It was called a full physical prompt. We can, you know, that's maybe a legal question of what restraint actually is, but there were full physical prompts to keep the child continuing with the task or uh, verbal continuing with the verbal demands that if they were escaping from the verbal demands, that's one of the things that. Shani, help me rec- 
like square this with the science. So if we're saying that this is a behavior, you know, this is a natural science behavior, square with this with the science, like with the neuroscience of the fight or flight system that escape is. <laughs> that the fight flight system and neuroscience was not at all discussed. So there, there was never a, a, a thought if a, if a child is running away from a work desk and hiding that their flight system might be activated. There was no discussion of that. What do you think about that? behaviors? Are again, it's that when I'm holding up that small little circle, it's they're so focused on the piece of behavior that they understand that they per- that they understand enough to measure and change mm-hmm. that they're ignoring the rest of behavior, and that's where the the fallacy lies. Thinking that you can take what is, it's almost like when you have some truth, it's it's almost more dangerous. If you mm. think you have all the truth. Because it blinds because, you to the full picture. Yes. Yeah. And there is like, it, you know what? It does work. If you prevent the child from escaping, eventually they'll give up. So yeah, scientifically it works. And, and, but what about the science of emotions and, and stress response and nervous system? All of that science is, it just doesn't fit into the framework of that little of that little circle that I talk about the natural mm-hmm. science understanding that they have now there's there is I think that that is trying to be changed and okay. I think there are plenty that still do it and there are plenty that are understanding that we can't do this anymore and that brings me to the second point of my disagreement with ABA and that's just even if you eliminate those actively harmful practices is reinforcement, what I call, I'm going to use some ABA terminology, which if there's any ABA people listening, you'll appreciate this. The concept of us controlling the child's reinforcers means that what we're doing is contriving reinforcement. So because ABA people always say reinforcement happens anyway, and we're just choosing what to reinforce and what not to reinforce. I'm trying, it's been a while since I yeah. talked about it. Have like writing so many writings of like how to explain this in the scientific terms because that's really what we need. We need to the science is there, and we have to go with the science and show that the science is being misapplied. We don't have evidence that contriving reinforcement is healthy for a relationship, and there's no data proving that it is damaging the relationship. So that's why they keep doing what they're doing. I feel like my nervous system is experiencing some stress while discussing this topic. I don't know about you. Okay. Can we just, I don't know if you like breaths, but I'm just going to put my hand on my heart for just a second here and send some love and compassion out to, to all the kiddos and the folks who are grappling with this. Yeah. I don't know about you. But for me, the lens change that I had to go through in learning about collaborative and proactive solutions and, you know, as a parent reading the explosive child, you know, from not from a clinician end, but as a parent who needed the book, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the mindset shift, the lens change that I went through. And the idea that of, you know, Dr. Green's uh, tagline, kids do well when they can, that tagline is at complete odds with any form 
of reinforcement or attempt to control behavior because Mm -hmm. in order to control behavior using rewards and punishments or reinforcement or whatever, we have to, there has to be some that is all predicated upon the idea that the child has volitional control over the challenging behavior that they're displaying. Hmm. And it's at complete odds with the idea that children are not choosing to be challenging that when children are displaying challenging behaviors, it's because they've got lagging skills and unsolved problems. And for me, that perspective, that mindset was such a huge relief as a parent, (laughs) like understanding, you know, that the voice in my head telling me all these lies about my child was just completely misinformed. Right, exactly. Completely wrong. That my kid was struggling. And in those moments when she was struggling, she needed de-escalation and compassion. And then we needed to work together proactively to figure things out. Yeah. That mindset shift was a huge relief. It continues to be a hard struggle too. But when I find it again, after a difficult time, when I settle back into it, it just feels so like such a relief. Oh, there's nothing wrong with my kid. My kid's not doing this on purpose. My kid is, is not fulfilling all of the greatest fears that parents have, you know, that they're never going to get this, that they're doing this on purpose, that they're manipulating all the things that parents, the things that go rolling through our heads. None of them are true. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, that's, that's true. So what was it like for you finding the collaborative and proactive solutions model? When it seems like your kind of your move away from ABA was, was rather gradual. I'm kind of curious about when you started leaning and what your practice looked like as you leaned, you know, I spent um, this, I would say the second half of my time in the ABA field, I really was trying to both grapple with, is there still a way I was, and I am convinced that you can use the science in a compassionate way. If you, acknowledge that you're only have the science only refers to a small tiny part of of our understanding of the brain and I was trying to like see if that's what I mean I became board certified even when I was already grappling because I thought then I'll have more say in what's happening in the programs we set up I actually there is one um behavior analyst who I would say is the furthest along in ABA reform and I I started following him his name is Greg Hanley, and he is really focused on meeting children's needs first and foremost. That's a big step up. And I thought, okay, maybe this is the answer. The reason I ended up leaving was because after trying to get this newer version of ABA implemented, I realized that the people that I was supervising had such a hard time processing this new way of thinking that it just, it was not happening. The shift wasn't happening, even when I was at the supervisor level. I mean, it was my, like trying uh, to swim upstream dur- yep. in a doubt, like, a, like in a waterfall. Yes, that's exactly what it was. And I even had the support of my boss, both the CEO and the director above me. They were all like, you know, we don't necessarily agree with that. We need a change, but you're welcome to do whatever you want. But it just, yeah, swimming upstream, it was too hard. So I took probably it was probably a year off where I, I didn't 
I just didn't work. And I, I was, I'm privileged. I was able to do that. And I just spent the time learning and reading autistic people's perspective and also seeing what else is out there. I think that I knew in my mind already what I would want to do in my practice, but finding Dr. Green was like finding someone who wrote the script out for me. So it's just so helpful when, when um, helping parents because he has the script written and I don't have to like explain it from my own heart, which can be harder. And he's got science too, right? So he's got lots of research behind him. Exactly. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. done research. Yeah. yeah. So what is it about the CPS model that you like so much? I, I think that that piece that I said that it's, it's scripted and it makes it like there's a step-by-step process to get to where we're trying to go. Where are you trying to go with families and kids? We're trying to change the relationship. That's really, that's really what we're trying to do. I know that the model is about problem solving, but it's the relationship that really ends up changing. And I'm sure you know that from your practice too. Absolutely. You know, in, in having these, a, a lot of sessions with kids and families, that first meeting with the parents and the kid together, where you're going to perhaps try to solving a problem together, that first meeting is all about bu- rebuilding trust with the child. Mm-hmm. They've had so many behavioral plans in place. They've had so many top-down decisions made about their lives. They've had right. so many attempts, well-intentioned attempts by beautiful, wonderful families, wonderful parents to solve yeah. problems where they just didn't stick with the model long enough and then applied a top-down solution to the kid that they didn't, the kid that did, you know, that really didn't fully understand the problem or that the kid didn't fully agree to, you know? So we do this a lot with kids. We do kind of, we really try hard um, to problem solve and then the kid's not giving us much. And so then we just make a decision about what we're going to try. And there's a lot of convincing that has to happen. I, I found, I don't know if you found with kids that this is going to be different, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something that I talk about with my parents too, and with the kids is that my job here is to teach your parents how to do this because grownups aren't taught how to talk to kids. Grownups right. aren't taught how to really understand a kid's perspective. Most grownups don't know how to ask questions in a way that will help them understand what you need. And that's my job. And it's my hope that you will, at one point, you'll never see me again. You know, that you, because your parents are the ones who will be able to really hear you and understand you and see you. Exactly. That's what I love doing. I love like coming in and getting out. I really like getting out and never seeing people again. Yeah. And, you know, like thinking of them fondly sometimes like wondering how they are and knowing that they've got this. I really like that. Yeah. You had said to me, we were, when we were talking a different time, something that really struck me, you had said that your work, you feel it's about helping the parent get in touch with their own inner wisdom. Ah, what a great concept. I've been holding that in me the whole time now as I do, as I help my clients. Yeah, I love that too. I mean, and that feels so good. And that's, I think that that's what 
you know, really that's what collaborative and proactive solutions is about, is about quieting the noise, all the cultural right. messaging that we receive about how we're supposed to be as parents, the authority figures, the ones in charge, you know, the, you know, and what our kids are supposed to be compliant, obedient, good listeners, you know, attentive on task and just quieting all that noise and really seeing our kids very, very clearly for who they really truly are. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, and I, I think the other thing that I like very much about the collaborative and proactive solutions model is that while the model itself is prescriptive, right? So there is a, there's a script that we follow, you know, that we're trained in. It's, um, you know, it's manualized practically. That's, and this is how they do research on it. They have to do it this way in order to do right. research, right? So if the folks listening, most of them are love research talk. And so we have to be, you know, if we're, you know, I, I don't participate in any of their research studies, but if they are doing research studies, they have to have fidelity to the model to know that it's that, that it's the model that's working, right? When they get, look at outcomes for kids. And so that is there, but there's a huge, within the model, there's a huge range of variation for how each plan B or problem solving conversation looks like with parents and children, right? Or with teachers and children. There's so much room for the individual family in it. I, I really yeah. like that. Whereas I, you know, my impression of modalities like ABA is that if you have X, you apply Y, you know, and you apply Y until, you know. I would say that ABA practitioners do strive to be individualizing their treatment okay. plans. Yeah, it's that they're individualizing it within the small world of behavior reinforcer or yeah. behavior remove reinforcer to change the behavior, right? When you have such a narrow window of how you're looking at things, you're missing everything else. I agree. Yeah. And I really, I want to say too that I don't harbor any bad thoughts towards ABA people. I mean, I think that everyone is trying to find their way within this complicated world. And I know that when I first found ABA, it seemed really reassuring. So I've discovered I'm neurodivergent. That's been part of my journey when I met the autistic community online. And I found it really reassuring at first and soothing to have this data-based completely, like all of our behavior just fits into these boxes I think that, you know, there might be a lot of struggling nervous systems within the field that find it really reassuring mm. and um, to, to know that, okay, we could fit everything into this box. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And that might be why it's so hard to switch out of it yeah. because it has brought them a sense of like, no, the world makes sense now. I get the world now. It's important to me. I really like how you're talking about it in this one small piece. And that order in that one small piece is there, you know, and it's right. funny, like that sense of kind of relief and comfort comes to me when I see parents understand their kids' concerns for the first time, you know, when yeah. I was doing a, a CPS conversation with a, a girl who her parents, you know, I think have, you know, were really concerned uh, in terms of 
think they were thinking about like oppositional defiant disorder, you know, all sorts of really big concerns, really big challenges. And they, the first one that we decided to focus on was um, filling up her own water bottle before bedtime. So filling up her water bottle that she would then have beside her on her bedside table. And as we were doing it, doing the problem solving, I was doing it with the girl. The parents just were sitting there with their jaws dropped. They had no idea how hard it was for her to do this job. They had, you know, the water bottles up high on the shelves. The ice machine was broken, so she had to open up the refrigerator and practically climb into the ref into the freezer to get the ice. You know, because there were just so many obstacles in her way. And the, you know, after hearing all of these obstacles, they they just apologized to her. We had mm. no idea how hard it was. You know, I don't know. It's just that sense of relief. Uh, that is order to me. Like that is, yeah, that's relieving to me. This is those moments of like, oh, we had no idea what was getting in their way. You know, we had no idea what yeah. was preventing them, you know, and that's relieving. I find so much relief in that. I don't know about yeah, you. <laughs> me too, for sure. I think probably everyone's brain is different in, in terms of, how much uh, this is slightly off topic, but I just saw this fascinating study that different political views, I'm not going political, but that different political views have different types of brains and that like certain political views, those brains were more in need of order and structure and other types of brains, other types of political views, the brain was more in need of nuance and, and not being black and white. And that to me explains a lot about like, yeah, like I also find comfort in nuance and like, I like the nuance of wait, parent is not really in charge of the child. We're actually like all human beings and are all of our concern, well, they're in charge, but they're responsible for them. But all of our concerns are equal. That's like, you have to enjoy the mental gymnastics, I think, to be drawn to this method. But I think even for the other types of brains that they really need that order and control, I think what we can show them as a practitioner is that you actually will will achieve much more order and control once you can let go of that need for everything to be perfectly in order and control. Yeah. And, and even more powerful, you achieve influence, right? That, I mean, you because your child trusts you, because your child thinks of you as on their, you're on their side, that you, want, you get them, or at least, the very least, you want to get them. You want to understand them. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm thinking about the parents who come to me and say, my child was just diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. And we were referred to, you know, X, Y, and Z therapies. And one of them is an ABA therapist. So for mm -hmm. those families who are just on the receiving end of a diagnosis or who perhaps already have their child in ABA, what do you want to say? to them? What are the things that they should be looking out for that sh they should be concerned about or that they should just be taking into consideration and holding lightly with curiosity, especially if this yeah. is the only, you know, so many of my, the folks that I talk to are in isolated small communities where they have very little access to, to a broader range of resources. So if they're limited in what they can access, what do we do? I'm sorry. I feel like I just asked you like a five part question. I'm sorry. All, all five parts are great questions. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, 
first thing I want to say is that autism diagnosis feels like, and I've seen this with parents, when, when they get hit with that, I think it's the way that the doctor presents it maybe, but they feel like their life has just changed. And the mm. first thing I want to remind parents is that your child is still the same person they were a day ago before the yeah. diagnosis. And you are not negligent if you don't do ABA. Okay. That's first of all, that's, I think the, probably the do biggest. Do parents get that message that you're, that you're negligent if you don't do ABA? ABA is considered the medically necessary treatment for autism. And if autism is like a bad disorder, then you have to treat it. Right. Yeah. This is huge. You're not negligent for not doing ABA. Yeah. Hmm. Big stuff. Really big stuff. I hear what you're saying, like in, in communities where there really are no other resources, I think that parents can look into if they just need help because they're overwhelmed by the behaviors that are happening and they need like a, a babysitter type of person. I've seen some parents where they want the ABA just for that purpose, you know, like and, respite. And I, yeah. So, right. So for those parents, I ask, um, I recommend they look into respite because that is also funded. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just babysitting basically what other reasons I think some parents are worried that they're not their child's not going to gain the skills that they need to gain look I have worked with parents who have decided to keep their kids in ABA I think that if you're very carefully monitoring and do the research on what to look out for you might just have a therapist coming in and I don't know teaching a skill but not forcing compliance I, if that's where you need to go, there's no judgment from me. And I would just say research, 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 and monitor, monitor, monitor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that there's, and there's likely so check in with your child too, like debrief with your child and see how they're, go how it's going for them. Yeah. I, I mean, when I say monitor, I, I would say like sit with, sit right. I mean, but also get their perspective, you know, cause what we watch and see might not tell us much about how it feels to yeah. the child, yeah. you know, to be Definitely. experiencing it. Right. That's a great point too. Yeah. And then of course, for those of us who are looking for support and wanting to do, you know, cause worrying about the skills that they need to be successful. I have found in my own personal experience using this mod, the collaborative and practice solutions model myself personally and professionally. And then of course, lots of other folks who put this into practice that the skills that kids need to be successful are, are actively taught through experiential learning within the model. Very, a lot right. of them. Yes. And so that's something else too, to just consider like the, the need, you know, the ability to break a problem down into its parts to think critically and to take perspectives, you know, those are critical social skills and critical executive functioning skills and emotional skills that I don't think yeah. you can teach. I don't know that you can teach in a classroom type setting. I think that those yeah. skills need to be practiced and used in order to get better at them. And they're used and very effectively. Um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. That's what, like in ABA, we definitely try and teach. We would try and teach those skills, but it's in a contrived situation. And yeah, we want them to learn the skills in an authentic setting. Like, mm -hmm. oh, I am regulating my emotions because someone else, someone else's boundaries are being crossed and not because I'm going to get the cookie at the end of this program. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so 
for for that, there's folks like you and me who do collaborative and practice solutions, right? So we sit down with parents yeah. and help them. I'm not currently taking clients, but are you, Shawnee? Yeah, I still do have spots. Okay, good. <laughs> I still have one-to-one spots open. Um, okay. So I'm happy. If anyone is looking for support, please reach out. And do you, so, you know, when I've worked with folks on collaborative and proactive solutions, it's been very kind of, that's what we're doing. Do you take clients who maybe are those folks who've just gotten this autism diagnosis and kind of need a, someone to, to hold them gently as they walk through the process and, and maybe do CPS at some point, or are you pretty rigidly following the model in your work? I can do that too. I'm pretty familiar with the the nuances of that, that shift. And that's definitely something I feel very uh, prepared to help families with because I've walked through the shift myself. Yeah. Not too long ago. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, Shani, I so appreciate you sharing your experiences and perspectives and expertise. Uh, listeners, if you're not already in my free Facebook community, the Balanced Parenting Community, please come join us. Shani is a wealth of information. And if you have questions about the collaborative and proactive solutions model, um, she is your go-to person in there or, you know, is seeking a one-to-one consultation with her. I, oh, she's so good. Oh, thank you. Thank you for uh, the chance to share this. This is uh really important stuff we're talking about today. It is. I appreciate the way that you've held kind of all sides of it with a lot of compassion and grace. I think that it is, it's a conversation that I have been, I think has been needed, like has been necessary and there's no one else I would have had wanted to have it with. So I think I really appreciate it, Shani. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, remember to subscribe to the podcast and if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of, um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, that's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other, and most importantly of yourself. And just remember, balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this.